This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I'm your co-host, Rob Hadley, a people and culture strategist specializing in DEI and people analytics. I am joined. And I am joined every week by Nadia Butt, an organizational development and belonging strategist. Nadia, it's so great to see you. Welcome. Ramadan Mubarak. How are you? Thank you. Very good. It's Ramadan, 30 days of fasting, sunrise to sunset. It's just like a deep reflection, reflective spiritual time. Good. You know, I went to my parents' house last night for the first iftar, which is like breaking the fast. It was wonderful. Just a lot of fried food, <laughs> um, a lot of fried food and just a lot of food in general. Um, it was just fun to, to be with my family. So it was great. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, I had a quick question for you related to something in the workplace that I've always, you know, admired your leadership styles because you, you know, I never worked with for you directly, but I've definitely worked with you um, in our previous right. life. And I was just curious what type of leadership style you think that you predominantly preference like of course i know you flex like depending on who you manage and who you're leading but what you mean in a technical term you mean a technical term yeah so there's so technically there's like you know some people say there's like six to eight different leadership styles so there's like visionary pace setting commanding Mm. democratic affiliative and coaching Okay. Which one do you think you are? Authoritarian, that one. No, <laughs> I mean that might no. that might be more commanding. <laughs> Despotic is that one. Yeah. No. Yeah. So all those, I think you have to, you really have to flex into any of them. You know, I had a manager. I could probably say his name, Ray Yang, oh. uh, who's who's someone that I really admire his leadership style. And so one of our first conversations, he said that the reason he liked my style is that 90% of being a good leader is just being a good, nice person. Yeah. It's like, really that simple. And being able to, to and being, having some emotional intelligence and being able to figure out what each situation called for. Yeah. And so that is, so yeah, I, I don't know if I, if I lean, I probably have a more instinctive lean toward things that are more collaborative yeah. and, but you know, I, I definitely, try to flex into the situation yeah how, how do you see your own leadership style oh Nadia? that's a great question thanks um thanks for that i would say i predominantly lean toward like the affiliate affiliative which is like building a bond with someone that's just kind yeah. of like who i am but i agree with you i think you have to flex right because not everyone is receptive to the leadership style that you prefer 
Um, and so if I were talking to someone who maybe needed to like, you know, have a better understanding of the big picture, I might need to flex to be more visionary. Which right. I feel like that's how when I would work with you, you were so much more like visionary. Um, I feel like you also had that like affiliative leadership style too. But, you know, that was just in your conversations with me. You probably flexed when you were talking to other people that you were working with. So yeah, right, it's really interesting. Right. I'd be curious like what other people think their leadership styles are. Of course, <laughs> I you know. Gonna say, I thought you were going to say, I'd be curious what other people think about your leadership style. And I'm like, let's not ask, let's not have people weigh in on that. Yeah, that's let's, true. That's let's true. keep that to, if you have that, if you have an opinion, let's, yeah, let's yeah. not share it. Don't share examples. Um, How's that? <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah. Should we get yeah. to the deets? That's deet. You're going to kick us off. What, yeah. do, what do we got? What's happening so, this week? According to CNBC, several of Google, we're back to Google, Rob. Several of Google's former employees are claiming that when they were told about being laid off, some of these folks were told while on maternity and medical leave. Like, can you imagine this, Rob? Okay. Like, you're out on disability or, like, your baby bonding time. And, you know, you. Re I recently just became an aunt. My brother and my sister-in-law are on, like, that that maternity paternity Yes, congratulations. Leave. Yeah. And, like, all of a sudden, these people are told that there's no need for you to come. They're not, you know, like, there's no need for them to come back into work and that they won't get paid for all of their remaining time off. So some right. of those former employees were told they were only that they would only receive pay through their designated end date, along with standard severance. Some of these people were accessing, um, accessing, sorry, the the on-site doctors. And while literally mm -hmm. while in treatment, while with the doctor, their benefits were immediately cut off. Right, um, and as right. you know, Google has a limited to date, you know, about 12,000 to 14,000 jobs. Um, well, they're strapped for cash, Nadia, so it's, I mean, it's probably something they have to do. That's terrible. Um, so, it, yeah. It, well, and I'll just also add that it's interesting that, you know, companies like Amazon, who also laid off um, quite a number of people, have said that they would pay out the remainder of the leave time in addition to several severance packages mm -hmm. to their employees. Yep. So it's interesting to see like what companies are deciding to do what. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know, we're at the tail end of Women's History Month and there have been a lot of campaigns from these companies and I'm sure from Google, right, supporting women or saying that they support women. So in light of that, we talk about pay equity, right? So I was doing a deep dive on pay equity, on the gender pay gap, trying to waterfall it out, figure out. What are the biggest contributors to that pay gap? Sure. And you know, a big chunk of that pay gap, it comes from the, the, the drivers that can at least partially be attributed to the fact that women, and I don't know if you know this, mm -hmm. have, have babies. They, oh, have, they, they have a lot of babies. Yeah. And a lot of caregiving responsibilities. So, sure. so that leads to time out of the workforce, to a greater need for part-time work, which pays less the inability to select into higher paying industries and roles because it requires more time at the office and longer hours. And that's a big chunk of the gap. So, and then you probably saw like five gazillion LinkedIn posts in the last couple of weeks where people were hugging themselves and embracing equity. Yeah. And, you know, and certainly there are people from Google doing this. So mm. I would just say if a company lays off someone that had a baby recently on maternity leave and doesn't pay the remainder of that leave, yeah. they cannot claim to be supportive of women. Um, or people, so to me, right? 100%. What's that? Or, or people, right? Like, of or course, people. women and a hundred percent people too. It's like it's and profit over care, people, caregiver, and, right? Caregiver. For sure. Yep. Is the easiest call ever for Google, right? Mm -hmm. I think we're talking about like a hundred women. 
So it's an absolute drop in the bucket. They should apologize for the oversight, pay for the remainder of the leave and move on with their life, right? Yeah. Go on making chat bots or whatever they're doing these yeah. days. <laughs> That's exactly what they're doing. <laughs> it is, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll hear more about that and it'll be a better resolution to that. Nadia, we also want to talk about NHL pride. We're going to talk some hockey. Are you ready? I'm ready. Sport. So this, Let's do it. <laughs> so this is an interesting story, you know, I think for the angles and the implications it has. I don't think it's simple for the company, in this case, the NHL, is trying to figure out the right course of action. So the National Hockey League is having some trouble with its efforts to court the LGBTQ plus community with various pride nights and other initiatives around the league. The past week, the Chicago Blackhawks we're, we're not off to a good start with that name, are we? The yeah. Yeah. the uh, the Chicago hockey team, as a team, declined to wear the pride jerseys that they were going for their to use for their pride night because of safety concerns for Russian-born players. After Russian President Vladimir Putin has been cracking down on any activities seen as supporting the LGBTQ plus community, mm. Minnesota Wild, New York Rangers also canceled their activities due to similar concerns. And then also recently, the San Jose Sharks goalie James Reimer. Also declined to wear a Pride pregame warm-up jersey due to his devout Christian beliefs in his, you know, according to the way that he interprets his beliefs. And the Philadelphia Flyers defense center Ivan Provorov also cited his Russian Orthodox church beliefs. Mm. So I do want to know what you think mm -hmm. here. This is an interesting question, especially on the religious piece where yeah. what do you do as a, bit, as a business leader when someone's religious beliefs, at least you know, what they feel or how they think about them run counter to your efforts to be inclusive to another marginalized or minoritized group? Yeah, I mean, it is such an interesting question. I, I personally struggled with this even, I remember like in college, I was part of the Muslim Student Association. I was on the board and I had a lot of uh, people that were part of the MSA um, mm -hmm. as students and then even colleagues present day who have shared that you know, due to religious reasons, they couldn't support the LGBTQIA plus community or someone who identifies mm -hmm. as part of that community. What I appreciate is that I'm bothered by that because like, that's not how I line. That's not my values. Like I right. um, fully support, as you know, I've said that multiple times, but I really appreciate it. I, I read um, the article you sent me and I was reading how like the sharks really were promoting that they have standards in place that they are promoting and that, mm -hmm. you know, they acknowledge that people who might not side or believe in the same thing that the sharks are believing in as an organization, though, they will not waver in the support of the LGBTQIA plus community and will continue to encourage others to engage in active all allyship. And I think that's leadership, right? That is exactly what shar the sharks, um, I think, you know, advocating for that on their social media platforms um, as part of their values to continue to say, we do. And so we, you know, we'll, we will continue to advocate and promote the allyship and the sponsorship that's needed for this community um, as we identify, you know, as we recognize that these people are humans and have human rights. Um, yeah. And really maybe encourage these folks to follow suit. So. I'll pause there for your reaction. I'm sure you thought. Yeah. About and I think and from deal. a tactical perspective, the Sharks also worked with their goalie, James Reimer, to put out a statement saying, these are my beliefs, but I also believe that everyone belongs and is welcome in hockey as well. So right, they, yeah. they clearly worked with him to, to, to craft a statement that was sure. 
inclusive and try to somewhat settle the situation. I think on the Russian front, on the, you know, I'd have to say that you have to take the the safety of your employees seriously as well, right? And obviously the support that you have for the LGBTQ plus community, you know, I'm for all for being an ally, but you have to acknowledge those different geographical, cultural, <laughs> political yeah. implications for Russian. It's not yeah. a joke, right? It's not like, a joke. You know, there are real consequences for these players and their families. I would differentiate for, however, between the Chicago team that mm. went ahead, that they didn't wear the, the jerseys, but they went ahead with all the other pride activities. And then the New York Rangers who canceled everything and didn't necessarily provide an explanation. And so oh, I think that's that really interesting. The Chicago probably handled that situation the right way. And like you said, I think that the Sharks did a pretty good job. It's a complicated and tricky, tricky call. And, uh, you know, we have employees that don't, we, you know, we don't, we're not all the same people, right? Yeah, we don't have the same, same experiences thing. or background, right? Or beliefs. And we're all working toward greater inclusivity, right? And yeah. so whatever steps we can, then that's, uh, can take, then that's, that's what's important. Absolutely. Well, thanks for that, Rob. Um, that's it for the deeds this week, folks. We'll be right back with our guest, Muhammad Missouri. Welcome back, folks. This week on Inclusive Collective, we welcome Muhammad Missouri. Muhammad is an accomplished progressive strategist with over a decade of professional experience in government and electoral politics. Rob, you must be so excited. I am. Uh, I am. Rob loves <laughs> Rob loves politics. Muhammad's experience includes working in the Massachusetts State Legislature and advising candidates, staff, activists, and volunteers on how to effectively communicate progressive values. As executive director of Jetpack Resource Center and a board member of More Perfect Union in the Council of American Islamic Relations, Muhammad continues to lead the way in promoting racial and economic justice policies and values. Muhammad, we are so thrilled to have you join us this week on Inclusive Collective. Welcome. Thank you so much, Shadi. It's great to be with you and Rob. Muhammad, thanks again for being with us. It's a pleasure to meet you. I think we got to go into your background as we get started here. Can you just tell us, how is your background, how does that and your identity influence the work that you do and, and how you got started in this work and uh, in the work that you do in politics? Yeah, sure. Um, it is very, it's, it's integral to what I do in politics. So when I started out uh, working in politics, it was uh, after college. I always knew that I wanted to do something related to uh, social and racial justice going back, you know, since I was a kid. I just really didn't know how it was like going to be journalism or law or, you know, or something in politics. Then um, in college, I really focused on studying American government and then learned through an internship at the state house the impact that you can have through a local government, essentially. So it's, you know, going back to municipal, mm -hmm. going down to the municipal level, but even, you know, in the state legislature. And so I focused on that and sort of like the holistic view that I can, you know, have an impact, which is, you know, economic policy, economic justice healthcare, housing, all these different things, which I still really care about. But what I kept noticing every single time I was either on the Senate floor, you know, or just like, in a, you know, in a hearing up for any kind of bill is that the Muslim perspective was missing. Mm. And it really, you know, as someone who, you know, had my formative years, essentially after 9-11, and, and constantly seeing like the negative stereotypes in the media, in pop culture, uh, and even, you know, from from public leaders, and never seeing that go unchallenged, it just made me realize like we really need uh, a seat at the table. And so I left the Massachusetts legislature, even though I really you know, loved the work that I was doing there. 
to take over an organization called Jetpack Resource Center that focuses on increasing Muslim civic engagement and training Muslim uh, Muslims who want to run for office. So my identity really is very much integral to the work that I do today. I still obviously do a lot of other work, building coalitions and focusing on economic justice for like all Americans. But my focus is to try to get more American Muslims elected, more of us, you know, in, in appointed positions behind the scenes in general hired. And so there's a lot of that. That's that's what the work that I do right now. Yeah. So tell me more about that. So there's over 3.5 million Muslims in the U.S. You know, when we think about Muslims being um, under underrepresented in American government, really at all levels. Like what, why is it important to have Muslim representation important? And why is it important, particularly in government and politics? So I think in, in general, lacking representation for any group just means that your perspective is missing in, in conversations, right? And you know, as a community, every single policy impacts us. You know, I think people have this perception uh, oftentimes that the Muslim community, can, you know, like they go to, oh, you're engineers, you're doctors, right? Yeah. Like it's it's all these different typical things. You're successful, whatever it is. And it's like, that's that's true. That's great. Some people are definitely, definitely successful, but there's a lot of poverty. There are a lot of working class Muslims. That's, you know, that's the majority of people. Um, but that data barely exists. It exists in some corners, but there's no real emphasis to actually uh, study any of these things, right? I mean, even if you look at the census, there are vast uh, millions of Muslims who are not really accounted for because uh, Arabs, for instance, have to check off the white box, right? The Caucasian mm-hmm. box. So when you start d- looking at some numbers, for instance, and uh, you can go to an Illinois, just did a study on uh, the Arab American, like uh, just like sort of a, a just demographic study, right? Sure. And they found out, for instance, that home ownership is at 15%. It's similar to like the, you know, the Hispanic population in in Chicago, Illinois, and, you know, other factors like that, realizing like that data then impact, you know, shows you what the actual status of these, you know, Arabs and some of them, obviously many of them are Muslims. So that's like one factor, but I would just say in general, it's just, it's, there are over 500,000 elected positions in the United States. Yes. And the Muslim community is around, you know, we're about less than 300 total elected officials out of that. Wow. So it's disproportionate. Um, but, you know, to make it even like more serious, obviously, it's the fact that so many policies, government policies targeted us after 9-11 in a really negative way mm-hmm. and in a harmful way that led the community to self-segregate to some degree. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, build seeing the representation increasing now from our from Muslims like across the country is getting the community more involved again, feeling like they can maybe start to trust the government and so that's part of the reason why it's it's having input and, and a say, you know, with our values when it comes to public policy. But it's also to really, you know, desegregate, essentially. Frankly, that's yeah. really that's a big factor. Actually, and I just a follow up question to that, because so I'm the treasurer for um, my sister is an elected official, as you mm-hmm. know, and I'm the treasurer of her campaign. I'm curious because you said like less than 300 for elected officials. Is is it similarly statistically where um, Muslims may not even show up in kind of all aspects of government, meaning like managing campaigns or like the treasurer like I am or communications. I know that's your background as well. So like, are th- do you feel that that number is starting to rise at all or is that still um, lacking in kind of the Muslim representation? It's definitely starting to increase. I mean, it's still lacking for sure, but it's starting to increase. We're seeing there are like several members of Congress now with Muslim staffers 
Uh, you have, you know, some people working at the, at the White House and the administration, and you're seeing an increase in people working in the leg in, in, in leg state legislatures as well. So it's definitely increasing, but it's, you know, again, like we're at the beginning, essentially. I, I, you know, that's really what it is. It's like it's phase one of, you know, of desegregating all of that and getting engaged, you know, civically in, in throughout the, you know, in, in every way. And so that, but it's still, you know, the work is being done, uh, which is great. There's more organizations, you know, popping up and starting to do, to focus on this work. And the best thing about it, the best thing for me is that it's diverse, truly. Like it, it's it's showing people's diversity, that our community's diversity in that, you know, you'll see people who have Somali background, Arab background, you know, Indian, Pakistani, like there's all kinds. You're seeing, honestly, a lot of our leaders are women, which is also incredible. And and like, that's the great, I think that is a, an incredibly important thing. So um, and you see folks a lot of from our, the LGBTQIA and, and, plus yeah, community. A hundred percent. Yeah, important. we've got yeah. a state lawmaker from Oklahoma, you know, as, as one of a uh, member from that community and who's, who's Muslim as well and elected. So definitely like you're just seeing um, an increase in all of that. And it, and it showcases the diversity of our community, which I think is really important that it's not led by one group of people, because that also wouldn't be very great. Right. From an inclusive perspective. Nadia, I thought you were going to ask for advice on how to to, to run uh, a campaign or uh, for office. Yeah. No, I have a, I have a, I have. <laughs> I'm going to ask for advice off, later off, too. You know, after the call, after the call. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to ask for advice later too, yeah. Mohammed. So uh, get ready for that. But you know, recognizing Absolutely. that all Muslims do not align politically, right? Like we talked about, you talked about mm -hmm. all the different. I mean, it's it's not a monolith. Um, so, what are some of the things that you would say the majority of Muslims have in common, or how to, if I'm trying to reach the and I'm doing quotations, uh, Muslim voter, mm -hmm. uh, what are the, some of the things that, that really break through to across, across differences? I think if you, so the, the common theme really is justice. And I think the thing that you can really focus on is economic justice. If you're going, if, you know, charity, uh, Muslims are some of the most charitable, um, people in this country. And, um, and it's so, and that's, you know, that's not just during Ramadan, that's throughout the year. And so really, like what really resonates, and you can look at, for instance, um, Senator Bernie Sanders did really, really well with the Muslim community. He brought out new, like new voters, um, and, in a, in a, and even Senator Elizabeth Warren too. But like those two really brought out a lot of new Muslim voters in 2020. And a big factor like behind that was that, they, that the economic justice message that came out of those two campaigns mm -hmm. really resonated with Muslims. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would say there's this perception out there that American Muslims are more focused on foreign policy. And I would say that, you know, the, obviously, like we care about what happens to countries where our you know, ancestors are from or parents directly, for instance, in, in my case, and, you know, where, or where I was born, I was born in Iraq. So obviously I care about that. But our main focus, and if you look at polls being done in different surveys in recent years, the main focus is domestic policy. And the number one thing is economic justice. And so mm -hmm. that is curing hunger. It's, you know, healthcare justice and it's environmental justice. Those three things are really massive and really important for the community, I would say. Do you know what the landscape for Muslim voters are? Do we do, do we, <laughs> like part of that community, mm -hmm. do we typically vote or, or do we fight? Are we, are we even able to track that information to understand like what the turnout is for Muslim voters? I've always been curious about that. I, I mean, I think if you go back to essentially 2016, uh, it's hard to track before. There are some numbers, there's like some pure research here and there, but it, I would say it's sort of inconclusive to some degree. But uh, since then, I would say there's like, there is more effort. There are 
greater efforts, more, more resources being put into tracking some of that information. And the number keeps increasing. How large it is, I think it depends on the state, frankly, and the work that's being done in those individual states. Uh, and I would say right now we are a community that tends to, you'll see higher turnouts and high and decent turnout in presidential elections, in general elections. We, we're still working really hard to make sure that people learn how to vote in essentially local elections because that's that's so incredibly important. So as a community, we, we are leaning more right now. Like the, the turnout is pretty good at, in presidentials going back to 2016. Um, but that's that's, you know, that's sort of what we have data for right now. Hey, Mohammed, I so as a non-Muslim, uh, so I'm, I'm not Muslim, Ramadan Mubarak, by the way, uh, I forgot to mention Thank that earlier. You. The you know, why is it? I'm just clip it in, clip it in early. <laughs> <laughs> as yeah. long as. You, yeah. It's, so. Yeah. So talk to me, you know, why is it to my benefit that political representation? I'm sure you, you speak to non-Muslim voters and, and, and all the time. Why is it to my benefit uh, that wherever I live in the country broadly, that that it's that it's representative demographically? What do we all have to gain from a political system that is more representative? So we live in a multicultural society, right? And I mean, and if you if you're someone who loves this country for its diversity and for the fact that we have diversity of opinions, we've got you know people from all backgrounds, uh, you know, gender diversity for that matter, um, or gender identity diversity. If that's the kind of America you love and and you want to live in and you want to see people essentially be you know uplifted and not oppressed in any kind of way, whether it's like systemically through policy or even like through casual, you know, casual uh, bigotry, then you want to see more representation so that you you realize which what country you actually live in. That's like the, that's really the, that's a massive factor. Specifically, when it comes to Muslim elected officials, what you'll notice there's a common theme with the majority of the ones who have been r- running and, and successfully winning in the last four to five years. Uh, there is this focus on essentially defending multi multicultural societies, you know, from right wing extremism. That's really a big factor here. Yeah. And, you know, and it's seen and if you it's not really so much about ad- identity for any of these candidates, it's about these policies that end essentially, you know, again, hunger, they end um, mm-hmm. homelessness. Right. It's like it's it's ending police violence and surveillance and those kinds of policies. So there's a lot of and also guaranteeing housing like those are really just like massive factors. Uh, but a lot of it really comes down to just like I think as a community, because of the last especially the last 20 years in this country, um, we are very focused on defending multicultural democracies and on, on really defending the, the rights and, and freedoms of every single person because we know what it's like when they're taken away from you. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really, for me, why it's so important to have you know, that diversity of opinion in there. And it's such, like you said, it's not just our community. In general, if our, if our government and our media and, and you know, our businesses, they reflect everyone who lives here and not like necessarily you know, to the T, but at least some sort of reflection of that, um, you might live somewhere that's completely homogenous, but you'll realize again what the greater country looks looks like. And I think that's sometimes lost when when policies are being made or you know decisions are being made when we talk about some of these things. Is that you again? Like some of us, we are in a very, we live in a very segregated society, right? Yeah. But 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 when, for instance, I look at policy, I live in Massachusetts. But when I look at any public policy, I do care about what happens in Alabama or Mississippi or Indiana because we live in, that's that's our country. That's all of us. So like, you know, if we have if, if the economic index in Massachusetts looks great, but Indiana's struggling, we as a country are struggling and we need to look at that. So I think that's really where that comes from. Right. Right. That's great. 
Muhammad, um, there's a bill that you're urging state legislatures to co-sponsor, um, mm-hmm. an act promoting the civil rights and inclusion of American Muslims in the state of Massachusetts, which I love because my dissertation is focused on the lived experiences of Muslim professionals in the workplace. Um, why is this bill so important? Um, who will it impact? Um, and what should constituents do to really support this bill? So the the bill would do what uh, currently exists for like the Asian American community, uh, for the African American community, for the LGBTQ community, elder Americans in Massachusetts. It it would establish a, a permanent state commission. The commission would have eleven members. They would be members from the Muslim community, and they would be appointed by you know various people: the governor, you know, lieutenant governor, AG, uh, Senate president, uh, House speaker, etc. And the point of that really is that. Uh, again, going back to the fact that there's um, underrepresentation in the community and the fact that as a community, we became what uh, Professor Sahar Aziz calls a racialized community, right? Mm-hmm. It's the fact that when, a, when these different government policies started treating us a, as one and as suspicious and, um, you know, just various ways in which we were targeted essentially by our government, mm-hmm. uh, what ends up happening is that the community became racialized. It went from just being like a religious group to really an ethnic group. In many ways, and so um, we need a commission like that that basically is focused on studying how policies impact us. It focuses on, you know, uh, even just like on developing a, a pipeline of talented people who want to become civically engaged. It focuses on uh, making recommendations, like and speaking about, for instance, Islamophobia to with, with our businesses, with our schools, and that, that's really what the bill would do. It's just it's just highlighting different ways in which anti-Muslim potentially. Uh, um, policies or, you know, media things or whatever narratives exist, uh, what that looks like, putting up these reports and then, you know, uh, presenting that to lawmakers, presenting that to business leaders, to, to educators, just so that our community has representation at that level. But again, it's, um, it's, not a, it's not a funded organization. So these would be volunteer commissioners. Sure. That's yeah. great. Are you excited about this? Oh yeah, I'm more excited than I sound. I'm very excited. <laughs> <laughs> no, sound- I mean it sounds phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's very yeah, tactical. No, it's, it should be. It should. It should be good. It should be good. I'm excited about it. We'll see. There's a lot of work to be done before you know before something like this can pass. Generally in Massachusetts, it takes it can take some time when a new bill is, is filed. But I'm hopeful that we can you know hopefully get a lot of support for it since it's really it's not controversial at all. So I'm hopeful that we can get support, especially. And again, there's been so much talk in recent years from lawmakers about uh, the importance of inclusivity, you know, and, and those uh, or inclusion rather and, um, you know, and diversity. So I'm hopeful like that we'll be able to showcase that this bill would help us do that, you know, with the Muslim community. Are, are, is mass, are there other states that have a bill like this that promote um, Not Muslim to my inclusion? knowledge. No. Oh, so that would be kind of pure. Oh, I love that. Would be leading. Um, I live in Massachusetts, so there you, you know, go. Um, yeah. This would be really cool to to lead that um, effort. Very good. It would be really nice. Yeah, I'll send you a link afterwards. You can contact your lawmaker afterwards. <laughs> yeah, we'll put it in the show notes too for anyone okay. listening to Massachusetts or even abroad. So that's yeah, great. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, and it really leads into a question that I have, and I really am going to lean on you for for your advice here, right? So I'm working. I live in Utah. I'm starting an organization here that works to get underrepresented folks to run for office, not just Muslim, but as you can imagine, mm-hmm. there are a number of underrepresented groups here in Utah. <laughs> um, 
Yes. So I've seen your representation. Like yeah, I've seen your yeah, yeah. elected bodies. Yeah. We've seen the there's staff. Some, there, there's, yeah. there's some work to do. And so what are the yeah. biggest barriers? Um, so you're, you're obviously leading this, this effort in Massachusetts. What are, what are the biggest barriers for people that run for office from backgrounds that aren't traditional to where they're running? What are the, some of the things that if you're trying to encourage uh, you know, underrepresented folks to run that, that you would start out doing? What are the first steps that you would take? All right. Um, it's a, that's always a difficult question because like uh, th there are multiple different answers depending on exactly what you're looking for. Right. So like which seat are you, which level are you, are you seeking and those kinds of things. If you're coming at this um, from a place where you don't necessarily, you're new to politics, mm -hmm. right. You need to think about the fact that this is a long-term game, Yep. right. It's a long-term process. It's unless you're, um, really, really independently wealthy and willing to spend all that money on your campaign. Um, and even then, frankly, that doesn't guarantee anything. But right. like, you know, unless you're doing that, don't go for something that is, uh, that definitely is going to cost a lot of money. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Because that more money just means like, you know, it, it's, it's, it's more difficult. So, um, so I would say like, think local. It, it, it's not as sexy as member of Congress. Oh, of course. Or, you know, right. Statewide something. But think local. Think about something local that actually matters to you. And um, and then start, you know, meet, scheduling meetings, asking people locally who do this work to meet with you. Ask them about, you know, what this position entails, if, if they, you know, what they what they think is missing, essentially, mm -hmm. and express that you're interested in, in a position like that. Right. And ask if you can get their support, et cetera. So I would say, like, the first thing is if you come from an underrepresented community, you need to focus on the fact that, you know, you can't just go straight to the top. Like, and I'll give you an example. I'll give you two examples from the Muslim community, for instance. People think Congresswoman, uh, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib came out of nowhere, right. right? And went straight to Congress. It's just, it's like, it's fundamentally the opposite of that, right? Where for going back to when they were essentially youth, they used to organize in their communities. And then after that, they, you know, like they both organize in different ways. Um, and they both ended up as uh, elected officials on the state level, on a local level. Right. And so in doing that, they built a base, they built, you know, name recognition uh, and also like an actual voter base within their congressional districts. And then when those congressional districts did open up, they were ready to go, even if like they could be, for instance, outspent. But having that name ID meant that they could actually, you know, spend the money to expand the vote and, and, and all these different things. But that's just really important. So that's one factor is just like be patient. It takes a long time. Uh, do the work. There are a lot of trainings out there that you can take, yeah. Um, but there is not does going Jetpack to be. Jetpack offer some of those trainings. Jetpack too, Jetpack too? offers a training. We we do have, we had, you know we do have a training that we think is really really good, obviously, uh, and you know feel free to apply for it. Um, but in, in addition to the training, like just um, ask a lot of questions. Like you need to find out, for instance, uh, what is the. You know what? I'm going to tell you something too that I think will some people feel like is not the most motivating thing. Uh, because it's just like, it shows you that politics is a business and, and running for office really just is a, is a business. And you have to just like respect the data. Essentially it's, you're not going to win an election because you're the most charismatic person on earth. Hmm. If you look at the vast majority of elected officials, you're not going to see a lot of charisma. That's just the truth. Right. <laughs> like, and, and that's not a, that's yep. not a dig. It's just not a dig. Yeah. It's just a reality. Right. Like, and that's yeah. okay. You'll, it's because ultimately it just comes down to relationships in your community and what makes sense to those voters. If you connect with those voters, especially like the more local it gets, the more important it is that people just know who you are and what you care about. 
So this like, you know, of course, practice your public speaking and all these different things like that matters. But if you're running, if you're running for something, you should know why you're running for that seat and what you really want to do with it. And you should be willing to talk to your voters and actually and just build relationships with them. That's really like that's just the most important thing in the world. You don't have to be the most charismatic. You don't have to be the most interesting person. It's more so about, you know, are you authentic in how much you care about what you're doing? Can you can you project that? And that's like something. So just be honest with yourself when you're running for office about why you want to do it and why this matters to you, because that's that is something voters pick up on immediately. Voters pick up on authenticity. That's just very easily, you know, that's easy for them to see. Um, And the other last thing is um, when I say respect the data, it's that when you're running for something local, chances are turnout is going to be low. It's going to be people who usually vote in those elections. There is this like romanticize, you know, you want to like people romanticize this notion of getting new voters in, right? Younger people and all these different things. And I, I totally get that. It's something that I really care deeply about. That's really hard to do in a single election. That's work that needs to be done in between elections. So your job, if you're running for office, is to win that election. So if the data says you need to focus on the people who usually turn out and vote, those are the people you target first and you try to actually reach reach first. And then if you win, because that's your job, if you manage to win, do the work in between in between elections to actually inspire new people to get involved and to mm. and to vote for you the next time around. That's that's when you have time to do that. You don't really have time to do it in the meantime. And that's what I say. It's like not the sexiest answers and it can be like unmotivating, but Frankly, like the motivation should be that you want to win. So, yeah. Rob, did you take notes? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, 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 you know, Muhammad's an expert and certainly respect his opinion, but I don't know if you've seen Mitch McConnell. I mean, that guy is just pure charisma, <laughs> right? Like, that is no true. way he got I mean, to I where he about, was. I forgot without, about Mitch McConnell. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, like, boy. just oozes charisma and charm. And it's like, wow. You know, so does Ronnie. So does Ronnie D. <laughs> um, so and I'll, the- I'll just say, I'm sorry, I'll just say this too about those, like the bigger the race, right? Like the larger the turnout you need to actually win, the more money does matter. And like the, the and that's really the, just the truth because it just becomes a straight up name ID situation. Mm. Did okay. you reach more voters than the other people? Sometimes like there are people who just go to the polls and they've only heard of one person. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really like it, it's again, it's like, it's not the most inspiring fact, but it's just a reality that we have to work within. And that's, again, why, like, the work in between election cycles is so much more important than just in the election cycle. Yeah, absolutely. But Mitch McConnell, Uh, I forgot. I'm sorry. Definitely a lot of charisma. Like, no doubt. No (laughs) doubt. Uh, So, Muhammad, the governor of Massachusetts just signed a proclamation acknowledging Ramadan. Why is this significant? I think, um, again, I think for the longest time, people were genuinely fearful of being associated with any Muslim in this country no matter who they were. Um, And that's, you know, both parties and all these different things. So it's not even just like a one party thing. And we're seeing now in the last maybe two to three years, especially with Ramadan, there is an interest in interest in learning about it. There's an interest in acknowledging that it exists. Uh, And it just goes back to what I said in the beginning, which is um, our community was was essentially forced to become segregated from the rest of society in a civic manner. Just a, a proclamation like this just helps people feel like their government cares about them and views them as equals. And, you know, and it, it, again, like symbolically, that just means a lot because if you feel like you can, you know, come out of the shadows or come out of, you know, your community and be, and be more part of 
you know, mainstream culture and, and again, like be engaged with your government without fearing that they're going to, you know, shy away from you, uh, that will help us increase in the future voter turnout. It will increase health representation. And so that, that's why that matters. It, it's, a, it's a small step forward to showcase that we're part of this community um, and that, you know, we're just like any other community in Massachusetts. Mohammed, that's great. And, and thank you so much. We learned so much today. Just uh, wanted to ask, did you have a, a resource or something that, that uh, related to diversity and inclusion that you, that you would recommend to our audience uh, before, before we go? So uh, because I'm, I like to say a message, uh, I'm going to recommend, um, let's see, let me just pull it up. Uh, it just so I didn't have the title correctly. MLK Juniors, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? I know it's not necessarily a modern reference, but I think, you know, looking at some looking at that and, and understanding, again, going back to the importance of ending poverty, for instance, how that really like brings us together as a community. I think that really matters. Uh, a more modern reference, um, it, like from a Muslim perspective, you can read uh, Professor Sahar Aziz's uh, racialized, you know, racialized Islam, I believe it's called. And then let's see, there's a last one. I'm sorry. This one was recommended by a friend who does this work. So it's not necessarily, this is not something I've read, but I, I will read it and I'll buy it. It's called Me and White Supremacy. Mm. And it's written by um, it's written by a lady named Layla, Layla Saad. Know, we could always put it in the show notes too. Yeah, yeah. Layla Saad, S-A-A-D. That, that doesn't that, sound that, heavy at all. <laughs> what that I doesn't was told, sound like a heavy what I, read. What I was told is that's like for advanced readers. Yeah, yeah. So I would, yeah, I would start with MLK, that's, you know, and, yeah. and, and go from there. And I haven't read it yet, so, but it, it was recommended to me. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing. Muhammad Missouri, wishing you a blessed and peaceful month of Ramadan. Thank you so much for joining us on Inclusive Collective Podcast. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back with our car reflections and raves and rants. Welcome back. Just finished chatting with Mohammed Missouri of Jetpack. Nadia. Yeah. What did you what, what did you think? You know, I always love a fellow Muslim uh brother or sister to join us on here. Uh so <laughs> I I appreciate it, Muhammad. I've heard a lot about him. Um he's been on Al Jazeera English. Um mm. he's been, you know, he he's really a big advocate in Massachusetts around Muslim um, representation. Um, I told you my sister, you know, my sister's an elected official. She speaks highly of him. Um, I really appreciated the conversation and the discussion, particularly around how um, the not only Muslim representation in politics, maybe running for something at a local level, at a state level, um, nationally, but also just voting. Like, mm. I am so curious about you know, yeah, we're probably starting to track that now, but I'm just really curious, like, who goes to the polls? Because I have friends, and I know my friends, some friends don't vote. So um, some do and some don't. And I'm just so curious, like, how do we get more voter turnout um, if the case is low in terms of the Muslim representation um, in terms of voter turnout? But in general, love the conversation. You know, my dissertation and my research is focused on the Muslim experience, particularly in the workplace. And mm -hmm. government is an organization. It is a workplace. And so 
Um, I, you know, this feeds into kind of me just conceptualizing more around my problem of practice. What were your takeaways? Well, one, that I don't have to be charismatic and I could still possibly run for office <laughs> and win even. That was yeah, a big, that, that was a, that was refreshing. Yeah. So I think that I, I, I really appreciate it. Lots of helpful tips and I will, uh, I'm looking forward to, to, <laughs> to listening to the episode because there are a lot of things that uh, I think I will go back and, and, and take away from that, uh, from, from some of his advice and maybe someday Mohammed will, will, uh, will help one of us get elected to, to Who knows? local office. Yeah. Right. Who knows? Somehow. You never know. Probably wouldn't help me though. Right. Yeah. So I mean, just through, just through advice. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe yeah. your wife. We'll get your wife to run. She'd oh, be great on like a oh, health she'd be, board she'd or be fantastic. Talk about charisma right? though. She has way too much charisma. Oh, wait, yeah. Right? Way too much for the people. Way to too be much charisma. <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let's, let's go ahead and rant and rave. Let's do it. As we wrap up today, you're gonna you're gonna kick us off with a rant, Nadia. Yeah, I'm pissed. I'm pissed, oh. Rob. Oh, I, I don't, don't know how we it. haven't discussed this yet because it's like I think it was there was a time where like so much was happening that we had to like pick and choose what we were pissed about. Yeah, but Tennessee became the first state in 2023 to restrict drag performances. Oh yes, yes. Right? So the governor, Ugh. I'm not even saying his name, signed a bill into law that would restrict public drag show performances in Tennessee, which I'm putting in quotes, limits cabaret performances on public property as to shield mm. them from the view of children, including okay. dance numbers of topless um, dancers, go-go dancers, exotic dancers, strippers, male or female impersonators who provide entertainment. So, you know, at best, <laughs> it's discriminative. I cannot um, see how this does not violate people's rights. And it's just, it's really, it's just dumb. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's particularly punitive as well and mean spirited right because exactly. there's not something it's not a problem that they're having it's not something that's a, an issue and so again i always come back to the seriousness of our elected officials are they actually spending their time on things that make a difference for right. uh the good of all citizens and this is clearly not the case i thought that some enterprising uh person should put together the world's biggest drag show and take it live in Tennessee. Should we do like, that? Because, <laughs> Should we contact? Yeah. Because, you know, if, if, if I'll show up, I'll, what? So I can't wear, right? I can't wear heels and a skirt in public. That That's a no, problem, apparently. You can't entertain. Uh, yeah. You can't. Right. Do I can't publicly. dance. I think yep. there should be a huge dance party festival in Tennessee. And I think allies show up and in drag and, and party for three days. Yeah, I hope that like there, I let's, hope let's work June, on it. There's a massive pride parade in Tennessee in the cities right. like in Memphis and Nashville and. I'm not going to be able available to come in June to Tennessee. I would put I it would. together, but I have too many projects going on right now. Yeah. So I, <laughs> but, I think I would yeah. encourage someone to put that together. I hope I hope totally. it happens. I'm going to rave. Can I? I'm going to rave about new Starbucks CEO Lassam Narasimham. I might be mispronouncing that. Who, upon taking over for Howard Schultz, who, as you probably know or may know, has made it his personal mission to destroy all union efforts at Starbucks stores. The new CEO spent his first week talking to employees and even working as a barista in stores. The new CEO plans to spend four hours a month in stores to understand the employee experience and will demand that his executive team do the same. So this is, you know, obviously, you know, something from our past as well. I remember we used to propose to leaders to do something similar yeah. in organizations that I was working in. 
And just by making that suggestion, Nadia, you immediately know who you're dealing with. And mm -hmm. <laughs> you talked about leadership styles earlier. Yeah. Some people you would say, hey, maybe you should spend some time on the front lines with your workers. And they would say, yes, let's, someone say, yes, let's figure it out. How do we do it? And others would just look at you like, hell no. No. <laughs> like it's not well, happening. I'm a leader. I don't do that. Yeah. That's and, what I mean, yeah. Right. So I think, so I think, you know, if you want to be a leader, I don't know a better way to connect with your organization and spending time with the front lines with people that actually make you money and solve problems for your customers. And so I think, and I think it's such a great test of leadership as well. Like you just go ask, go suggest to a leader in your organization doing something like this and you'll get to know them pretty well based on what, what their answer is. So I, I would encourage, uh, <laughs> just, just go ahead and mess with people. Just go out and just ask and make suggestions like this, right? Yeah, undercover boss, but don't be undercover. <laughs> I love yes. it. That's a great rave. That's a fantastic rave, Rob. Yeah, yeah. So I'm looking forward to it. Hopefully Starbucks, uh, you know, I, I know they need a lot of help. Uh, they're not doing very well as a company. I'm just kidding. They're doing great. They're fine. <laughs> I was like, I get my lattes still <laughs> from there, but all right. <laughs> so yeah, hopefully that kind of leadership will uh, will catch on. And look at you bringing us full circle back to the leadership style. So thank I know, you for that. I know, I know. Okay, Nadia, that's it today for Inclusive Collective. We are a production of Refilion Media. We'd love to hear from you. Please send us your feedback at inclusivecollective at refilion.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. As long as we have TikTok. Uh, if you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch with us for consulting, check out Nadia at nasconsultants.com and Rob at decanoconsulting.com. I am also, as you know, Nadia, hosting the DEI and Metrics Measurement and Reporting Masterclass on May 11th. Details at climate4dei.com. Thanks again to our guest, Muhammad Missouri. We'll be back next week. Well. Thanks, Nadia. <laughs>